0: It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with iconic actor Henry Thomas. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight came into most of our lives with his role of the little boy Elliot in one of the most iconic films of all time, Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. And he's only added to his incredible legacy with stellar roles in The Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and Dr. Sleep, with his incredible collaboration with writer and director Mike Flanagan. Here to chat about his life and career is Henry Thomas himself. Henry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, on. Henry, there's so, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I wonder if we could start off with just a little biography. You came into the spotlight early in life, as we all know, but what was life like before E.T., before Raggedy Man?
1: Well, I grew up in Texas, uh, sort of South Central Texas, uh, not far from San Antonio. And my parents were kind of you know, hobby farmers uh, on the weekends, <laughs> and I just kind of fell into the arts uh, in a in a very strange way uh, through piano lessons and uh, regional theater, and then I landed a part in a film called Raggedy Man in 1981, or well, we filmed it in 1980, and that sort of set the path for me, uh, to go to Universal and meet Spielberg and, and all of that stuff that led to, uh, where I am now.
0: And and I didn't know this actually until I started doing research, but, but as correct, your first film wasn't E.T., but Raggedy Man with Sissy Spacek, I really, I, I didn't have any idea. How did that first role itself come about?
1: Well, that happened, uh, through a random audition that happened in San Antonio, Texas, they they advertised, the casting agents uh, advertised on the news and the radio that they were holding an open call audition uh, at a Holiday Inn in downtown San Antonio. And I said, oh, mom, dad, I've got to go to that. I've got to go. And they said, well, OK, we'll take you. Uh, but don't get your hopes up. Because there's a lot of kids. So I, I went and and the audition process felt like a long time. But I think, you know, for a kid, time is kind of dist- distended. But yeah. uh, I think it probably took about two and a half or three weeks. Uh, and I ended up getting the part. And that film shot in Texas, not, not far from where I grew up.
0: What was the first moment that started the journey of you getting cast in ET? I mean, did you have an agent call you or your parents? Did you all see an ad in the paper? Was it a news thing like you said? I mean, what were the events that led up to your audition for that role?
1: Well, I didn't have an agent. No agent would represent me because I lived in Texas. And they said, you have to move to LA if you're serious about this because we we don't want to deal with uh, you know an out-of-state client. And my parents didn't want to take that step. I mean, they had a simple life and they liked it that way. Uh, But basically, Sissy Spacek and her husband, Jack Fisk, who was the director of Raggedy Man, they kind of acted as, uh, as our guide into the business because we didn't know anything. And, you know, Jack was editing Raggedy Man across the the hall from Spielberg uh, while he was working on uh, the initial, you know, rough of uh, Poltergeist, I think it was at the time. And he had heard through the grapevine that Steven was looking for a kid for this upcoming film. And, you know, he tossed my hat in the ring, put a clip together and... And Universal was kind of behind the idea. So when I was doing ADR for Raggedy Man in in 1981, I had an audition with Spielberg for E.T.
0: And your audition tape, if I recall, is in itself kind of iconic and probably one of the more famous audition tapes in Hollywood history, where did that wellspring of passion and emotion that you brought to that audition come from? I mean, when you watch that tape, I mean, it's solid. I mean, it's, it's, it's very real. Like you were Elliot already.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I, I, I don't know. I always, I guess I always had that, uh, that kind of em- emotional uh, depth as a kid. I don't know what it was from. Maybe it was from being alone in the middle of nowhere in Texas and pretending to be dead so that the buzzards would land near me and I could look at them, like that kind of thing. Maybe maybe that's where it all comes from. I'm not sure.
0: Was that ad-libbed?
1: Uh, yeah, that was an improv that you see on on the YouTube audition. It's, it's basically... Uh, the tail end of the audition process because they had given me a, a, a page of dialogue to read and this kind of uh, mock scene that wasn't in ET at all, but it was just kind of this cobbled together scene so they could test the kids range, I suppose. And, and anyway, I, I did a horrible reading I felt. And so when you see me the first, uh, the first time I'm on camera and the audition, uh, that's right after I've given this horrible reading, in my opinion. So I have this kind of downcast look on my face in the first place, and I had thought, well, I I lost this part. I you know I didn't read it very well. So I think that also helped spur on some of the uh, the emotional uh, outpouring that happens in the in the latter half of the of the improv.
0: When you find out that you got the job. Is that like a, a a moment that's permanently seared into your memory? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, that never happens. Even if they know you have the job, they don't say that because a lot of things can go wrong legally between, you know, then and production. So it's not always wise to say that because then you have a screaming, Actor at the end of the day going, but they told me I had the
0: part. Were your parents ever concerned about you taking on such a big role at such a young age?
1: Yeah, I. my mom and my dad. My dad was less concerned. My dad kind of viewed it as, you know, it was kind of like we were the Beverly Hillbillies or something. And <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had accidentally stumbled upon this black gold. But, uh, my mom was kind of wary of the whole thing. My dad was ready to like quit his job and move to California. He was like, yeah,
0: that's great. We're cashing <laughs> in on him.
1: <laughs> yeah. And my mom was like, no, you're not, you're going to work your job and you're going to keep it. And this could all disappear tomorrow. And she was right. So.
0: And now but, if, if if I'm not mistaken and, and, uh, a, a lot of people wouldn't know this, Harrison Ford, he was originally in, but got cut, so Melissa Matheson
1: was the screenwriter of e t. And she and Harrison Ford lived together, and, you know, were had been together for years. And Stephen was constantly trying to convince Harrison to do a bit part in the film. And Harrison kept refusing. and finally he said okay well i'll do this part of the principal in the office when elliot gets taken into the office after releasing all the frogs he has in the script he had this conversation with the principal and the principal was played by harrison ford very exciting day on set for me uh at that time he was one of the coolest guys on
0: the planet i mean he still is oh and and
1: like For me, I was a huge Star Wars fan. That was the whole impetus for me wanting to be an actor in the first place, wanting to be in films. I saw Star Wars in the theater and I thought, wow, that's amazing. People do that as a job. And I thought, I want to do that. That seems like fun. And Harrison Ford, to me, became like the iconic movie star uh, with roles you know characters like Han Solo, and then Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones yeah. and you know, and I also saw all of the other films that he was in, like Cisco Kid, and um, uh, of course American Graffiti, and even I can't remember it now, but I I found the film that he was in when where he was an extra. He's like a bellhop or something in the in the hotel lobby. So as a kid, that was. A huge moment for me, and I, I just, uh, I was so disappointed when it wasn't in the film because I wanted to tell my friends I'm on the screen with Han Solo.
0: Well, uh, that ma- makes me uh, think of a question. Those days, being a kid, working with Steven Spielberg and on a, a movie any kid would die for. What was your life like in that period? I mean, did your did did, did were you were you doing? were you having to learn and go to school on set or did you actually still go to school somewhere else? I know that you're from Texas, but I mean, did you have to go to a school school? Did you have to learn on set? How did that work?
1: Yeah. So the way it works when you're a kid uh, under the labor laws, uh, you work for your, your to- total total d- day will be eight hours, right? And that will be comprised of three hours of school, one hour of lunch, and four hours of filming. Um, But it doesn't always work out that way because on the days that you aren't working, you might go to school for extra hours to bank hours on days where they need to uh, film and they need you more than they need anybody else and they kind of cut corners and get around the legalities of it like that. Like you can bank hours and use them at a later date. But as a kid, school was always something that I did uh, as an afterthought. Like it was always about my job and uh, making the movie and, ah, school, I got to go. I got to do the school thing. Um, so I really take my academics as seriously as I should have, I think.
0: the uh, uh, Now I heard Steven Spielberg's kind of like a child on set in many ways. Is, is that true?
1: That is true. Yeah. I mean, he's a child in the sense that he's excited and invested in everything in a way that uh, that kind of excludes anything outside of what he's focused on. Uh, And it's kind of amazing because he, I feel like he would do every job on set if he had the, the opportunity to, if he had the chance to uh, be an actor as well as the camera operator and the boom operator, he would do it all.
0: That's a little, little Tarantino-esque. Um, the- yeah,
1: but it's it's that whole thing yeah. of you know he he is completely immersed in the process and that's what he that's what he wants to do. He wants to make that story come true.
0: And there's no better way to do it when you exercise that level of control in so many different areas because that way you make sure your vision really
1: true. It's true.
0: Now, um How did he come across to you and Drew Barrymore and the other kids? I mean, how was he able to elicit such stellar performances from children? Well,
1: you know, he had a great way of communicating uh, to kids that didn't make you feel like he was an adult talking down to you. He felt kind of like a co-conspirator. You know, you were a collaborator. You weren't some kid. And you guys were doing something special together, you know, it was really cool. So when Steven would come up and give you a note, you know, it was to serve the story always. And we were always about, you know, getting, getting the best of what we could get on film, you know, that was the goal.
0: How did you and the cast interact with E.T.? I mean, was it hard to interact with essentially a puppet and make it believable, especially at that young age? Or did it seem easier for that because you were? Because when you're a kid, there's more make-believe and what have you?
1: Yeah. I mean, in a way, you can sort of gloss over certain things as a kid, I think, a, a, a little bit more easily or it's more believable when a kid does it anyway. But it was difficult for me at times because I had a lot of emotional scenes with this puppet and, and I had to make, I had to make that all happen, which was easy within the framework of the world because, you know, E.T. becomes very important to the character and vice versa. And, you know, so as an actor, I was able to do it as a, as a young performer, I was able to do it. Um, But I was never under the impression that, oh, this is a real creature. And, you know, but, you know, Drew Barrymore was young enough at the time that the veil between reality and fantasy wasn't, quite so intact. And so she imagined the puppet as being real sometimes and would talk to him and wrap a scarf around his neck and worry about what he was going to have for lunch and things like that.
0: Um, The first time you saw the film, was that at a private screening? Was that in was that in a theater was that in the the debut of it when when did you first see it and what do you remember about that first time you saw it in its completed form
1: it was a premiere uh in Houston Texas and it was the first time i had seen it and i saw it with an audience and i was blown away by the audience's reaction because you know when you make a film it's piecemeal and it's kind of like watching paint dry and Mm -hmm. especially in those days when there wasn't playback or anything like that, you know, it's just like a guy with a camera going, okay, well we've got it. I think, you know, we'll know in a few days.
0: Yeah. You can't go back and look at the scene and go, can, let me see how that, let me see what my expression looks like in that real quick. Whereas now you can just go back and boom, they just, and you look at it you go, okay, I need to change this right now. Let's do that again.
1: Right. Or, well, I mean, just the, the mere fact of, you know more than one or two people being able to see what's in the frame you know it, it, it that was solely you know trust in the operator and 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 the first ac who was pulling focus you know that was you saw in dailies 3 days later whether or not they did a good job and then if they did a bad job they were fired and replaced you know
0: and but then you might have be shoot some, shooting something over again which then puts people behind
1: well yeah it cost a lot of money right so we get it right the first time it it's a different it's a different thing now because you know now you have a video village where anybody who can see the screen can see what's in the frame and how the shot's tracking and they can correct it and and stop it then and reset it yeah it's it filmmaking has changed a bit technically i mean it's still the same it's just it's the same process it's just uh a, a little bit more finely tuned i suppose
0: when et ship is closing in and taking off and that john williams score swells to its crescendo when you're there watching it yourself the first time what were you feeling as a kid in that in that moment
1: well it's great to be a part of something like that because um especially to see where the audience is at that point to see it in a theater with an audience is a, a fantastic experience.
0: When, when you look back on all these years, you know later, what's your favorite memory from working on that film?
1: I have a lot of memories of working on that film and a lot of favorites. It's funny though because it's it's not so much one specific memory as it is the collection of the whole thing. And they're mostly banal, kind of very boring, commonplace, everyday memories like my dressing room, uh, my bike that I used to ride around the stages and, you know, get yelled at for not being findable, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, things like that. But it's never anything that was in the film. It's always stuff that happened behind the scenes. Yeah.
0: Before we get into your much more current projects, I would like to ask you about Et came home for Christmas. Um, oh yeah, the, the commercial. What a, what a pleasant surprise that was for everyone when they saw that ad for the first time. You know, especially those who are nostalgic. I, I think that was what 2019, right? 2019, yeah. How did that? How did it feel for you playing Elliot again, all grown up? And was it as special? For you shooting it as as it eventually became for people when they saw it like the first time, and I say it because I took the time to watch it again right before this interview, and it still made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know, I think it 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 sort of it satisfied that craving for a sequel without being too indulgent and too saccharine about it, you know. It was just enough, right? Yeah. And and it fills in enough blanks without uh, being too on the nose. But I think the great thing was that um, people really responded positively about it. And that made me feel good because, you know, a lot of these things have come across my my desk uh, over the years, you know, these, like, big Super Bowl commercial ideas and things like that. And a lot of them were really ridiculous. And most of them were not okay, I think, with Spielberg. But this one had his stamp of approval. So I felt all right doing it because I think, you know, he's very precious about the film and he keeps it very protected. So. I didn't want to do anything do anything to uh, to jeopardize that.
0: It's obvious from looking at your CV that you never stopped working. You've always remained a working actor. But for younger people who've seen E.T. but have missed out on your other work, it's almost like you exploded back onto the scene when you met Mike Flanagan. Um, I know yeah. he's been building his brand for a while. But ever since Hill House came out, it's like every good horror film or show that comes out, he's he, he seemingly has had some sort of hand in making. You have a unique perspective, having worked so closely with him on so many projects. Talk to us a little bit about the man himself. When did you first hear about him?
1: I met Mike in 2014 in a general meeting, but he was talking about this film that he was doing, uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Uh, which is sort of a, a sequel, prequel to uh, a Blumhouse movie called Ouija, which I, I hadn't seen. I, I'm, you know, ironically, I'm not much of a horror fan. I don't know much about the horror world. But I met Mike and he said, I'm a big fan of your work and I want to cast you in this uh, as Father Tom. But I want to I cast you in everything that I do. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I was about to fade into obscurity. You know, I was just probably a couple of years away from just kind of slipping off the edge of the known world. And here's this guy who wants to, like, say I'm his favorite actor and put me in everything. So I didn't believe him, you know. I thought he was just selling me some hollywood line but the part came through and i did it and i had a blast working with him and he was the most organized director i've ever worked with you know like everything is lined out he's got a shot list that he's built sets around so i was kind of taken aback by his enthusiasm and his uh, Proficiency, I, I suppose. And then he kept good on his word and he kept feeding me these parts. You know, every few months I would get a call and he would say, I got something. Do you want to do it? And I had never experienced that before. So it was kind of fun. And it's been fun working with him because he never gives me a dull um, a dull job, I suppose. I always have to either make something out of it or find something to, um, to do with it that, that kind of sets it apart. And as an actor, that's been, uh, a challenge and, and a pleasure to work with characters like this over the years. It's been fun.
0: Hill House. I mean, my God, that show felt like it came out of nowhere. And then it just took Netflix completely by storm. Is that how it happened for you as well? Like you were talking about how kind of the role came about?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Mike had told me, Mike was like, yeah, I want to cast you as a lead in this movie. And I said, well, Mike, the studio is never going to that you cast me as the lead. Well, uh, don't, don't be so sure. You know, then a few months later, you know, it's like, it's not the lead, but I have this role for you that I think you're really going to like, and you can really do, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was a bit of a, a funny like Hollywood shuffle, but I always, I always thought it was, I always thought it was admirable that, Mike kept trying, you know.
0: <laughs> I mean, I kid you not. I mean, it gave me so much unadulterated uh, joy to see you killing it in that show. And I guess it just proved once again of what Spielberg saw and you all those years was correct, you know. <laughs> um, so to me, Mike Flanagan is, is one of the best directors working today. And so now you've kind of worked with uh, essentially, in my mind, two royals how did their styles compare? What are their unique strengths when you set them, when you, I mean, where do they, where are they very similar and where are they different?
1: I, I think they're all very similar in, um, attention to and management of the story, you know, being able to bridge that gap between, uh, audience and, uh, I suppose the, the the inner voice of the characters. I think the great directors always have that in mind, working in conjunction, uh, which is, which I think is difficult to do. You know, it's difficult to see the the piece as a whole before before it's assembled.
0: What was it like working with so many child actors in The Haunting of Hill House? I mean, the Crane Kids, ha- having been in their shoes.
1: Well. Uh, f- I was blown away by how professional they all were and how, you know, well trained they all were, you know, well disciplined. I was you didn't so. Have to worried. go find
0: them on their bikes. No, no, I know.
1: <laughs> I, I well, that's what I kept saying. I kept saying I, I wouldn't make it in today's world of child actors. Like these guys, they're like, you know, they're like playing instruments and. You know, like heading up their social media empires and stuff. You know, it's like I was, I was never, I was never of that ilk. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. But these guys were amazing because Violet McGraw, who uh, played Young Nell, I had this two-page scene with her, and she was six years old, and I thought, oh man, this is going to be a slog. Um, you know, this little girl, you know, we'll have to shoot her stuff first and then I'll be there by myself probably doing the rest of, you know, she was so on it. She knew the scene better than I did. Uh, she never missed a beat. She picked up her cues. I mean, she's five or six years old. I couldn't believe it.
0: Did any of them have any idea uh, of your background of your of your ET pedigree?
1: Yeah, um, they all knew. They all knew, and you know, i i gave them all um I gave them all a gift, uh, an ET related thing. I think I gave them a a, a book about the making of ET, um, and signed it for them all as you know, as kind of a a starting gift.
0: Now now you said you were never a big fan of horror films before signing on to do Hill House. I've always wondered what it's got to be like to act in a horror film or show. How do you get yourself to a place where you can accurately portray the the horror that your character has seen or felt? I mean, how do you how do you do that? Where does that where do you where especially if you don't come from that that genre, I guess? Where does that come from? Where no, do you draw that from?
1: I don't I've I spend a lot of my time laughing on horror sets because, you know, usually like the first and second act, you're building these incredibly intricate characters with, you know, backgrounds and worlds that they come from. And, you know, they've got real struggles. And then in the third act, you just throw it all out the window <laughs> and do whatever illogical thing the script says, you know, to get to the end. But, you know, it's, it's kind of funny and it's ludicrous at times. So, um, but I think it's also kind of gallows humor, you know, cause you have to deal with a lot of macabre stuff. So laughing about it kind of takes the sting out of it, I suppose.
0: Um, You and Timothy Hutton play play the same character, just one year younger and one older. You both did a fantastic job of mimicking each other. How did that work? How did you guys devise that? And how did that come about?
1: We hung out together for a total of about two days. We went to the aquarium in Atlanta together. We had a, a rollicking good time. And... We just talked and then the next thing you know, when we were on set, he was doing a little bit of me and I was doing a little bit of him and it all worked. I think he did more of me than I did of him because my my stuff was at the beginning of the shooting schedule. So he was on set a couple of times um, for scenes that I had done and I saw in his body language he he stole some of my ticks. So,
0: what was it like working with the phenomenal Carla Gugino as as your wife? I I, and I was kind of I was invested in that relationship, and it's a testament to the work you guys did together. What made that relationship come across so well?
1: Well, first of all, she's the best. She is a great lady and a wonderful professional actress. Uh, she is so so well-disciplined and she's so uh, interested in making it the best. Uh, So you're always in good hands when you're working with Carla. And I just, I really enjoyed getting to know her. And, uh, she always is, she's kind of like, um, she she's kind of like royalty that's what she seems like when she comes on set you know it's like everybody kind of has an audience with her and kind of defers to her like you you know you 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 just want to earn her respect but uh at the same time you feel like she could probably kill you with her stilettos
0: (laughs) (laughs) so so coming off of hill house you've got to tell me what it was like getting the call to work on Dr. Sleep. I mean, you were tasked with the, with, with accurately portraying one of the most iconic characters and roles in cinema Hills history, that of Jack Torrance in the shining. How did that role come about?
1: That was another one of um, Mike Flanagan's phone calls saying, I have two parts for you. Now there's one that only works for a day, but I think it's pretty iconic. Um, but I understand if you don't want to do it. That's how he snares me. He says, I understand if you don't want to do it. And then I say, well, wait, why wouldn't I want to do it? Yeah, so he talked to me about playing this role. And I said, yeah, that sounds fun. And, you know, as long as we're not doing a send-up of, of Jack Nicholson's performance or doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation uh And, you know, he, of course, did not want to do that.
0: What did Mike ask of you when trying to explain what he wanted? I mean, how did he try to direct you in in those scenes?
1: Well, I I think Mike was dialing me back a lot because I think I I was making more definitive jumps into Jack Nicholson and into Lloyd and into Delbert Grady. And it was like because it's the most work I've ever done for one day of work. Like I had to shave my head a month ahead of that and do a bunch of wig fittings. And I only had really two scenes. So I had worked on these scenes for a month and I had sort of i guess extrapolated like too much i had like done too
0: preconceived notions of
1: like oh this is where he is now and here he is and you know so i got to set and mike was like no 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 we're doing this and this and you know it's i i was really happy with the with the scenes and it was fun and a lot of people didn't even realize uh that it was me
0: and you're talking about, I mean, because you had, you were finding yourself back with so many co-stars from Hill house, you know, for the haunting of blind Manor, midnight mass. I mean, you had a lot of the same co-stars, right?
1: A lot of the same. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really uh, work with them on, on, uh, on Doctor Sleep, very much. You know, it was. Uh,
0: I was just in and out. It was just because it was like a couple of days there. But you know what, though, it it still feels like a lot of the great directors do this, having kind of a, a gr- core group. You know, when you look at uh, Scorsese, when you look at Tarantino, when you look at, you know, there are certain people that you know that certain they like to use a lot of the same same people. I mean, heck, how many Harrison? How many how many Spielberg movies has Harrison Ford been in? You it's know, it's
1: true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's nice. And I understand it. You know, you, you, you kind of, it's, you approach it like I'm going to get the right tool for the job and I understand how this guy works and that woman uh, brings this to the role. And, you know, it's, it's great. I understand it as a director and it's fun as an actor to, to know, the performers that you're working with and, and have a chance to work with them in different, in different characters.
0: Does does it make life easier as an actor? I mean, does that established relationship help you to be your best or does it somehow, I mean, I, I, I can't think how it would take away, but maybe, I don't know.
1: Uh, no, I think it, it, it does help. You know, it, it takes away the getting to know you hour or You know, the surprises of, oh, I did a scene with this guy and this is the way they work. And, you know, I'm, it threw me or something. You know, I mean, it happens. So, so it is, it is nice to, to work with the same people, especially if you like them. And, and luckily, all of the people that Flanagan usually hires are, are good, good actors, but also, Pretty decent folk, usually.
0: So with with Midnight Mass, um, almost like having a religious experience watching that show. um, Yeah. You were in on some of the monologues that Linklater so powerfully gave. What did you think of his performance and what he was able to deliver there?
1: Well, he was fantastic in that role. Um, And it was so much to do It was so much to remember and, and so much performance, you know, and he did a lot of those big speeches, uh, you know, back to back in the same day. Um, you know, I sat in the church for most of midnight mass, like as a, you know, featured extra, uh, most days, and so I got to see a lot of uh, a lot of his work, and uh, I was very impressed. I mean, we all were very impressed.
0: Did do you ever have like holy crap, I'm feeling things right now moment, like so many of us did watching? Like, I mean, does it? If I mean, when you're actually in it, and somebody's doing something like that. I mean, obviously it's designed to evoke certain emotions, people watching it on film, but do you have moments where somebody's giving such a performance that you, that actually evokes the same emotion from you as an, as, as an actor or just as a person literally on set?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's great when you have speeches like that, that you can see because it really, you know, it's an, it's an unadulterated performance, um, so and it helps you draw time.
0: too, right? It helps you draw. Oh no, yeah,
1: time. for sure. Yeah, and it's all happening at once in real time, which in film you don't get that a lot. So it, it's it's nice, and you know, Mike Flanagan, he really, really, uh, he loves a speech. You know, he loves a monologue. So we we have an opportunity to. Do a lot of that kind of stuff and in, in in most of his productions. But Midnight Mass was particularly heavy on that.
0: Of your many collaborations with Mike at this point, do you have a favorite or is it kind of like picking between children or
1: Hill House is my favorite. Uh in in terms of the total project, like how it how it turned out. Um I love the story and I think the performances are all great and it's fun. And my personal favorite character that I've played is uh, Lord Henry Wingrave from Haunting of Bly Manor. He was the most fun that I've had. Uh, And my character in the upcoming Fall of the House of Usher was a lot of fun to play.
0: So wrapping us up, this year, I believe, marks the 40th anniversary of E.T. And I understand you were recently reunited with Drew Barrymore, D. Wallace, and uh, Robert McNaughton. When was the last time you'd all been together like that?
1: Before this year, the last time we had all gotten together was at the 20th anniversary for E.T. at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles where John Williams conducted the orchestra live uh, with the the film. And that was a wonderful...
0: Do you ever get emotional thinking back to those people that experience those, those, those memories?
1: I mean, it feels like they're all kind of my family, you know, they're all some kind of cousins, uh, once removed, but we, we keep in touch and we see each other at these weird events every so many years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> like weddings and like, like, like with, with normal families with weddings and funerals, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah it's like, oh. um, Well, the reason Enjoy. why I ask is because I wanted to ask you if, if Hill house or anything else was able to top that ET experience or, or because of it being what it was, you know, it, 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 is that's always going to be the, the most cherished thing or have other things come up, you know, or, well, or are they just like I said, picking between trying to pick between children?
1: In a way, it is picking between children, but it's also what the audience finds. I think that's that's really the the key deciding factor, because now I experience uh, a younger generation of fans who know me from Hill House and don't realize that I'm the guy from ET.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: you know, or they put it together after the fact. And so, you know, if if there's any law or or, or something that we can follow, it's just that time will change everything. Right.
0: So do you have any new projects in the works right now?
1: Uh I have a couple of things uh some independent films that I'm doing in the first quarter of of next year and I have uh you know fall of the house of usher mike flanagan uh is going to be released on Netflix at some point I don't know when um next year in 2023 and that's all I know uh I have various irons in the fire you know, I have a book that I I wrote that was published in 2019 uh, that's being printed in, in paperback this year. Um, it's called The Window in the Mirror. So you can pick it up if you like The Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. It's sort of of that ilk.
0: And for those, and who otherwise
1: are- I'm just, otherwise I'm just working, you know, same old thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, for those uh, whom are not already following you on, on various socials, but would like to, are there places people can follow you? Yeah. You can
1: follow me on Instagram at H J Thomas, uh, Jr.
0: Henry. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, Henry Thomas.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on your show. I've I've enjoyed it.